You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Brock, Griffin, Jonathan, Rotary Coast, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Roland, Lancelot, Bigbeard, Ash, Willie P, Shant, Brian, Schmarls, Madame Anita Sparrow, Randy Savage, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Kilmeister, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like to begin today back in 1680 with our old friend, Captain Thomas Paine. You should remember Captain Paine. He was one of the English privateers that came to the West Indies during the Franco-Dutch War. When the war ended, he sailed out of Tortuga with a French commission. He was one of many. English privateers that did so, but Thomas Paine sailed under Michel de Grammont, and in his career he would sail alongside Lauro de Graaf and Michael André Zoon, as well as another Dutch pirate named Jan Willems. In 1680, Jan Willems and Thomas Paine visited New England, where they accepted a privateering commission from the governor of Newport, Rhode Island. They were tasked with driving the French out of Block Island, about 13 miles south of Newport. They drove the French out successfully and sent word to the governor and then waited around for the first English to arrive. The most important of these, to our story anyway, were the Sands family. Their home, the biggest house on Block Island, would serve as a kind of inn and common room, as well as a hospital for local residents. 
It was a community center. The Sands brought their son with them. His name was Edward, and he had just married a lovely girl named Mary Williams. When the Sands arrived at Block Island, Thomas Paine was still there. He would have met Edward Sands and Mary Williams Sands, as well as Mary's very young brother, Palsgrave. Here in 1680, Thomas Paine would have met a five-year-old, Palsgrave Williams. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. But if it does, if that name rings a bell, I mean, isn't that amazing? I'm imagining a five-year-old boy looking up at this imposing man. He's got a cutlass hanging from his belt, a heavy coat, knee-high boots, all the trappings of a rough-tongued sailor. And I imagine that five-year-old having that image kind of burned into his brain. After departing Block Island, Thomas Paine went on to do everything he was going to do. He raided Campeche and Rio de la Hacha and generally kind of pirated around until 1685. That's when an order came down barring any English sailor from sailing under foreign princes. So Thomas Paine retired, kind of. He sailed for Jamestown, Rhode Island. That's a tiny settlement on Connecticut Island just across the harbor from Newport. A couple of years later, Jan Willems showed up and collected Thomas Paine for a raid against St. Augustine, Florida, but that was his last hurrah as a privateer. By the time the Nine Years' War broke out, he was retired from privateering. Instead, Thomas Paine served as kind of a bank for smugglers and privateers and pirates in the region. They could drop off any winnings that they wanted to hide before sailing over to Newport, and for a fee, Thomas Paine would make sure they got everything back. It was a lucrative little business, and far less dangerous than privateering. Most of the time, anyway. This is episode 273, The Artifice and Cunning of Ill-Disposed Persons. When we left off last time, Sarah Bradley Kidd had just arrived at Block Island to stay with Edward and Mary Sands. By that point, Paul's grave Williams would have been 24 or 25, so it's unlikely he was hanging around. Meanwhile, William Kidd and his lawyer, James Emmett, were at sea in the sloop St. Antonio. They were strategizing how to approach Lord Bellamont. And Lord Bellamont himself was... That's something we should talk about. When Captain Kidd arrived in America, Bellamont was at his home in New York. But after James Emmett met with Bellamont, told him that Kidd was in the region, and asked if Captain Kidd could sail into New York instead of Boston, Lord Bellamont sailed for Boston. Now, it's tempting to look for some motivation here that involves Captain Kidd, but that's probably not the case. Bellamont had other equally pressing business in Boston that had nothing to do with Captain Kidd. See, the governor had a lot on his plate. He was rebuilding New England. He was trying to keep tensions with the French and their Native American allies at a minimum. And, of course, he had all the piracy stuff. And he had a three-pronged approach to ending piracy in the region. First, he wanted to put an end to the rampant import of pirated goods to which end he employed trustworthy dockmasters and customs officers. 
It wasn't perfect, people would still take bribes and look the other way, but it turned what had been a fire hose of illegal goods into a trickle. The second prong was to arrest all of the leaders of that cabal behind the pirate round. Benjamin Fletcher, Frederick Phillips, Adam Baldridge, and a lot of their associates, their underlings. In fact, had William Kidd stayed in New York and just been a magistrate loyal to the governor, he probably would have been swept up in that. But there was one man, one member of this cabal, that Lord Bellamont could not get his hands on. It was a man that he desperately wanted to arrest, but just couldn't. But it's not like he was in hiding. Everybody knew where he lived. He'd just been to the governor's house. I'm talking about James Emmett Esquire. The lawyer that represented William and Sarah Kidd. The upstanding citizen, a vestryman at the Trinity Church, remember. Lord Bellamont called this pillar of the community, quote, my avowed enemy. He also called him a Jacobite and accused him of Bible burning, said he would burn in hell himself. They were not fond of one another. We'll get to that, though. The third prong in Lord Bellamont's response to piracy was to deal with Rhode Island and Edward Randolph. Edward Randolph was a crown agent sent to America to enforce the 1696 Navigation Act. That 1696 act was aimed at ending the, quote, great abuses being committed by the artifice and cunning of ill-disposed persons, end quote. Essentially, according to this act, all shipping in the English Empire had to be regulated. No goods were to enter any port belonging to England without the proper documentation. That means that the ship either had to be a crown possession, or to belong to one of the joint stock companies, or to be registered and licensed by local officials. If properly enforced, there would be nowhere for pirates to sell their wares in the English-speaking world. Now you might think that this would make Bellamont and Edward Randolph allies, but they weren't. They worked together when they had to, but they hated each other. Imagine that you're in charge of a big project at work, but the CEO decides to put somebody in place to oversee the project. Not your boss, not in charge of you, just some oversight. But it's like the CEO's nephew fresh out of business school, right? You're going to butt heads, and that's what happened between Edward Randolph and Lord Bellamont. Still, they worked together well enough when dealing with Rhode Island. That's a bit of a sidebar to our story, but it was a big deal at the time. Rhode Island elected a governor named Samuel Cranston something like two weeks before Lord Bellamont arrived in New York. When Bellamont arrived with all of his anti-piracy policies, every sailor in the American colonies with a checkered past sailed for Newport. Rhode Island, which already had a pretty sizable pirate presence, suddenly became home to every scallywag in the colonies. Lord Bellamont, realizing that this was an issue, decided to put an end to it, and an end to Samuel Cranston. And that's why he was in Boston in June 1699, at a friend's house. He was working on bringing down the governor of Rhode Island. He was drafting a letter late on the evening of June 13th when a knock came at the door. Bellamont had to get the door himself. 
His servant was ill that evening, and that was actually kind of a problem for Bellamont because he had a pretty severe case of gout. It was unpleasant, painful for him to get up and get the door. But when he saw who it was, his mood got even worse. It turned out to be that lawyer, James Emmett, a man Lord Bellamont called his avowed enemy. See, James Emmett was more than just a lawyer for the Kidd family. He had been an advocate for the former governor, Governor Fletcher, and he was hip-deep in pirate business. He'd worked for Thomas too, and a number of other men on the account, all of whom had the favor of the former governor. However, there wasn't actually any evidence that he ever did anything wrong. Or I should say, anything illegal. Lord Bellamont hated him. And yet here he was, at the door, asking to speak with the governor. I don't imagine it was exactly a surprise for Bellamont. I mean, he knew Kidd was in the region, and he knew that Bellamont was representing him, but unpleasant nonetheless. And this situation, you know, this was a lawyer for a man accused of the worst piracy in the world. Someone who had been so close to the old governor, and he arrived after dark in an almost clandestine fashion. It didn't look good. Still, Bellamont let him in. About a month later, Lord Bellamont wrote a letter detailing his meeting with James Emmett. He wrote, quote, On the 13th, Mr. Emmett, a lawyer of New York, came late at night and told me he came from Captain Kidd, who was on the coast with a sloop, but he would not tell me where. Kidd had brought about 60 pound weight of gold and 100 weight of silver and 17 bales of East India goods, that Kidd had left behind him a great ship near the coast of Hispaniola that nobody but himself could find. That if I would give him a pardon, he would bring the sloop and the goods hither, and would go fetch that great ship afterwards. End quote. Kidd was laying it all on the table here. He told Bellamont all about the money, which was more than enough to pay his creditors, and about a great ship. Now, I told you last time that Kidd burned the adventure prize. That was not correct. My information was bad. The former Quita merchant was still floating and anchored in the Rio Igue in Santo Domingo, apparently still filled with treasure that Captain Kidd promised to bring back. William Kidd also had James Emmett present the governor with the two French passports that should have proved his seizures were perfectly legal. This was Kidd making a case for a full pardon, and he said it there. If the governor would give him a pardon, he would bring all of those goods to New York. And to his credit, I don't think Bellamont was lying when he said that it might be possible for Kidd to get that pardon. He was wrong, but I don't think he was lying. Mr. Emmett stayed the night, and in the morning left with that good news in hand. He was accompanied by an associate of the governor named Duncan Campbell, who represented the governor in all of this business. But William Kidd wasn't going to take any chances here. The night before, as soon as James Emmett was in a boat rowing into Boston Harbor, Captain Kidd set sail. He left. Which was, according to plan, he wasn't supposed to stick around. They intended to meet on Block Island, where Sarah was waiting for them. But first, Captain Kidd had a few stops to make. 
Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. This leg of Captain Kidd's voyage would prove to be among the most discussed and debated and argued about voyages in all of world history. Because before Captain Kidd sailed for Block Island and his wife he decided to hide some of his treasure. It was kind of an insurance policy, hiding some of that wealth that might be able to buy his freedom in the future. It would be foolish to show up and hand it over without any assurances of his freedom. But here's the big question. Did Captain Kidd set sail northeast or southwest? It's a question that's gripped the mind of treasure hunters for centuries now. One school of thought suggests that Captain Kidd made for Nova Scotia to the northeast, for a tiny little spit of land called Oak Island. There he is supposed to have buried his treasure. But, look, you know how people still love to discuss whether there was ever actually a real King Arthur, they talk about all of the evidence that's now been lost that proves there was some archaeological dig in the 1800s that found the real Avalon, the real tomb of the real King Arthur. And it's fun. I like to hear about that stuff too, but when you listen to anyone with even a shred of expertise on this topic, they all say the same thing. Arthur may have been based on some real warlords in the late Roman, early Anglo-Saxon period, but... That archaeological dig, that was a fraud. There's no evidence to support there was ever really a King Arthur of England. He's a literary invention. Captain William Kidd did not sail for Oak Island. 
he never buried any treasure on Oak Island. There's a slim possibility that one of his crewmen could have done it much later, but no one from Kid's Voyage had the kind of money that was supposed to have been buried at Oak Island. Now maybe, maybe, a group of the crewmen from the Adventure Galley who left the Adventure Galley to sail with Robert Culliford they might have had the kind of money that was talked about and buried it on Oak Island sometime later. But even that is a very long shot. And those are only the really early stories about what was hidden on Oak Island. Believe it or not, the real resting place of King Arthur, called Avalon, was rumored to have been Oak Island. Or, no, maybe it was the Holy Grail that was hidden at Oak Island. Or maybe it was aliens, or Jimmy Hoffa, or, you know, you get the idea. It's become a focal point for wild theories out there. I should also mention here, since I neglected to do it when it happened, that Captain Kidd may have buried some treasure before leaving Madagascar. He may also have buried some treasure in the West Indies. Both of these theories are problematic for their own reasons, but they are going to become relevant in the days to come. Instead, I want to talk about what we do know. After dropping off James Emmett, the St. Antonio rounded Cape Cod and headed southwest. Now, Kidd could have made for Block Island and his wife, but instead he headed for Kananakut Island just across the harbor from Newport. That's the home of our old friend Thomas Paine. Now, Captain Kidd already knew Thomas Paine, and everyone knew Thomas Paine by reputation. Richard Zacks describes him as, quote, semi-retired into what could be characterized as the pirate banking and cargo resale business, end quote. Thomas Paine would hold on to your treasure for a fee and serve as a fence for some stolen goods. Now, he wasn't going to unload a haul of East India Company spices and silks and opium. That would garner way too much attention, but... If you had a chest of, I don't know, gold dust and silverware, precious gemstones, and some very fine jewelry, Thomas Paine could sell some of that for a very fair price. And he did, here for Captain Kidd, as well as for James Kelly. Thomas Paine and James Kelly went way back. They'd known each other from their days as pirates in the West Indies. According to one source, you could even characterize them as friends. After they sold some of their goods to Thomas Paine, Captain Kidd handed off three pounds of gold for Paine to hold on to. James Kelly deposited 800 pieces of eight in the bank of Thomas Paine. Now, they conducted all of this business on board the St. Antonio, and I wonder here if Thomas Paine also knew Edward Davis. I'd be surprised if they hadn't at least met. They were both in that same generation of privateers. But once their business was concluded, Thomas Paine was taken back to shore with some amazingly rich cargo in his boat. Now James Kelly wanted to go back with Paine here to stay with his old friend, but Kidd quashed that idea. He said no, and for whatever reason, James Kelly listened to him. As they were preparing to depart from Connecticut Island, a longboat arrived from the other side of the harbor, from Newport. It was filled with men bearing arms. 
Now, they didn't name Captain Kidd. In fact, nobody knew that this was Captain Kidd's ship. It was just a stranger with a bunch of men and guns on board. They ordered the sloop to strike sail and to allow the men from the longboat on board. But Captain Kidd just fired off two of his big guns in their general direction. He didn't hit anyone. He wasn't trying to. He was just reminding them that he had a bunch of big guns and was willing to use them. The longboat prudently decided it was best to return to Newport. And now, finally, Captain Kidd could set a course for Block Island. It was a short trip. Block Island was very close by. And the St. Antonio anchored off the coast, but Kidd did not go ashore. His reasons for keeping his distance from his wife and kids was partly practical, but also a little bit silly and romantic. First, practically speaking, he wanted to secure some assurances from Governor Bellamont before he did anything that might implicate his wife. Second, though, he needed to freshen up. James Emmett and Duncan Campbell were already there at Block Island, waiting for Captain Kidd, and Mr. Campbell had brought along some supplies for what Kidd might need to see his wife. A shaving kit, everything he might need to bathe properly, and a fresh, new, very fine wig. Captain Kidd did not want to look like a man who had been at sea for three years the first time he saw his wife. William Kidd spent an evening discoursing with Mr. Campbell about his case and his defense in that case, and then he sent Campbell back to Boston to secure word from Lord Bellamont about his legal position. Would he get a pardon? Captain Kidd probably sent word to New Shoreham House, where the Sands family lived, where Sarah was staying, but he told her she was not yet to leave. He was working on it, but they weren't quite ready yet. Instead, after he had sent off Duncan Campbell to talk to Bellamont, Captain Kidd left Block Island and sailed west. They made for an island called Gardener's Island, home to the Gardener family specifically a John Gardiner. Now, Captain Kidd didn't know John Gardiner, but he had a reputation similar to that of Thomas Paine. He would hide your treasure for a small fee. James Emmett went ashore first to make introductions, and Kidd was welcomed into Gardiner's home. They had dinner. They shared mugs of fresh cider and some pork roasted by Gardiner's wife. Apparently... Captain Kidd was more than satisfied, so he cut a deal with Gardiner. Kidd was going to send his slaves ashore to be kept by John Gardiner. There were only four of them, but they were all children. And I, I struggled with what kind of language to use here. I think because they're kids, I wanted to say that Gardiner was going to take them in or to take care of them, but you know, it's a bit too decent for the reality of it. He was just holding on to some of Captain Kidd's property. For him. Captain Kidd also sent a few bales of valuable cargo ashore, cargo that Gardiner could keep in his warehouse, along with a last bale of goods that was marked R.B. for Richard Barleycorn, Kidd's cabin boy. Finally, William Kidd bought some supplies from John Gardiner. He purchased a cask of cider, so like 30 gallons or so of slightly hard cider, he also bought a few lambs and talked Mrs. Gardiner into roasting a pig for him. 
In return, Captain Kidd gave her a piece of fine cloth woven with strands of gold. You can actually go see that piece of cloth today in the East Hampton Public Library. Now that Kidd had his cargo in safe hands, three pounds of his gold in safe hands, and all of the necessaries to freshen up, Kidd headed back to Block Island. When he got there, Duncan Campbell was waiting for him with a letter from Lord Bellamont. And that's an important letter, so I'm actually going to read it here in full. It reads, quote, Boston, 19 June, 1699. Captain Kidd, Mr. Emmett came to me last Tuesday night late, telling me he came from you, but was shy of telling me where he parted with you, nor did I press him to it. He told me you came to Oyster Bay in Nassau Island and sent for him in New York. He proposed to me that I would grant you a pardon. I answered that I had never granted you one yet, and that I had set myself a rule not to grant a pardon to anybody whatever without the king's express leave or command. He told me you declared and protested your innocence, and that if your men could be persuaded to follow your example, you would not hesitate to come into this port, or any other within his majesty's dominions. That you owned there were two ships taken, but that your men did it violently, against your will, and had used you barbarously, imprisoning you, treating you ill, most part of the voyage, and often attempting to murder you. Mr. Emmett delivered me two French passes taken on board the two ships which your men rifled, which passes I have in my custody, and I am apt to believe they will be a good article to justify you. Mr. Emmett also told me you had to about the value of ten thousand pounds in the sloop with you, and that you left a ship somewhere off the coast of Hispaniola, in which there was the value of thirty thousand pounds. These are all the material particulars I can recollect that passed between Mr. Emmett and me. Only this that he told me that you showed a great sense of honor and justice in professing with many asservations your serious design all along to do honor to your commission and never do that least thing contrary to your duty and allegiance to the king. And this I have to say in your defense that several persons at New York, who I can bring to evidence it if there be occasion, did tell me that by several advices from Madagascar and that part of the world, they were informed of your men's revolting from you in one place, which I am pretty sure they said was at Madagascar, and that others of them compelled you much against your will to take and rifle two ships. I have advised with His Majesty's Council and showed him this letter this afternoon, and a quick pause here, he's talking about Edward Randolph, that agent of the king. The letter goes on, and they are of the opinion that if your case be so clear as you, or Mr. Emmett, for you have said, then you may safely come hither and be equipped and fitted out to go and fetch the other ship, and I make no manner of doubt but to obtain the king's pardon for you, and those few men you have left who, I understand, have been faithful to you, and refused as well as you to dishonor the commission you had from England. I assure you, on my word and honor, I will perform nicely what I have now promised. Mr. Campbell will satisfy you that this I have now writ is the sense of counsel, and of your humble servant, the Earl of Bellamont. End quote. That is a humble way to end a letter, your humble servant from an earl to a mere privateer, 
It shows that there was still a modicum of respect between the two men. And it was good news, all told. It looked like Captain Kidd could get his pardon. Or at least that he wasn't going to be immediately arrested and given an opportunity to go get the Quita merchant. Captain Kidd wrote a response that very evening, which I'm also going to read in full. Captain Kidd said, quote, From Block Island on board the sloop St. Antonio, June the 24th, 1699. May it please your excellency. I am honored with your lordship's kind letter of the 19th current, by Mr. Campbell, which came to my hands this day, for which I return my most hearty thanks. I cannot but blame myself for not writing to your lordship before this time, knowing it was my duty, but the clamors and false stories that have been reported of me made me fearful of writing or coming into any harbor till I could hear from your lordship. I note the contents of your lordship's letter. As to what Mr. Emmett and Mr. Campbell informed your lordship of my proceedings, I do affirm to be true and a great deal more might be said of the abuses of my men, and the hardship I have undergone to preserve the ship and what goods my men had left. Ninety-five men went away from me in one day, and went on board the Mocha frigate, Captain Robert Culliford Commander, who went away to the Red Sea and committed several acts of piracy, as I am informed, and I am afraid, the men formerly belonging to my galley, that the report is gone home against me to the East India Company, that I have been the actor. A sheet of paper will not contain what may be said of the care I took to preserve the owner's interest and to come home clear in my own innocence. I do further declare and protest that I never did in the least an act contrary of the king's commission, nor to the reputation of my honorable owners, and doubt not I shall be able to make my innocence appear, or else I had no need to come to these parts of the world, if it were not for that and my owner's interest. End quote. I'm actually not going to read that letter in full. From here on out, it's mostly just logistical stuff. Captain Kidd saying what he needs from Lord Bellamont to go get the Quida merchant from Hispaniola. He concludes the letter, quote, This, with my humble duty to your lordship and countess, is what offers from my lord, your excellency's most humble and dutiful servant, William Kidd. End quote. Now, for weeks, we've been talking about Cutlass Culliford and the division on board the Adventure Galley. We know all about what was really happening. But it's important to remember that this was the first anyone in America had heard from William Kidd about what really happened out there. And you've got to admit, it does kind of sound like he's saying, Nuh-uh, it was these other guys on this other ship that did it. A guy nobody had ever heard of. The East India Company knew all about Robert Culliford, but... That news wasn't making it back to England. Still, William Kidd felt good. He'd said his piece. He'd gotten assurances from the governor that he was going to do everything in his power to see that William Kidd got his pardon. Everything seemed to be coming up Millhouse, so William Kidd finally sent for his wife and daughters. And that's where we're going to leave it this week. Next time, we're going to reunite William and Sarah Kidd and return William Kidd to mainland America. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a like. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you.
The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.